Revelation chapter 6. We're going to, I want to read the first, uh, not the first, but the three different verses, uh, 9 to 11. Revelation 6, verse 9, and this is again a cry uh, of the martyrs. The cry of the martyrs. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while, a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. Again, we're going to be looking at the cry of the martyr and what is God's response. And as I was thinking about God's response, we have to even just identify and determine uh, who our God is because he is definitely misunderstood in this world. One man said this, It has been observed that God created man in his image and man has returned the favor. We, re, we create God in our own image. We create Him to be what we want Him to be. And even as the Hindu religion has 300 million gods, uh, many in, this, in the United States has their own version of their God. Whatever happens to please them, whatever happens to even accommodate their sinfulness, they, they imaginatively uh, create their own God. In fact, one cynic said it this way, God is... God is only a great imaginative experience. You know, uh, again, you just create whatever you want to create as far as uh, this is my God. You know, God said of those foolish types people in Psalms 50, you thought that I was altogether like you. You know, God looks down and says, you thought I was just like you. Well, let's, let's actually look at who God really is. Again, we have to go to his word. In his word, it says that he is holy. In fact, it is the only attribute that is said three times, holy, holy, holy. We find that, obviously, in Isaiah 6 and Revelation. Again, the scriptures are the only source that we can go to to find out who God really is. And what do we find out in scripture is that he is loving and kind and merciful and gracious. He is a savior of sinners. But one truth that is decidedly unpopular with most people is that God is a God of vengeance. See, we want to say, yes, He is loving and kind and gracious and merciful, but when it comes to vengeance, that is very unpopular. Like, God isn't going to have vengeance on us. Well, actually, Deuteronomy says this, vengeance is mine and recompense. The true God which there is only one true God, is a God of vengeance. Let me just establish that carefully. You could go to the Psalms, the imprecatory psalm. By the way, imprecatory means to call down calamity on someone. Okay? Well, I thought I was supposed to just love people. Well, the psalmist periodically called down calamity. We're not going to worry so much about the calamity part as the fact that he's talking to a God of vengeance. Like in Psalm 79, verse 10, it says, Why should the nation say, where is their God? 
Let, let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. The avenging of the blood. God is going to be the avenger of the blood. He's a God of vengeance. Psalms 94 verse 1, O Lord, God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? And he repeats that. And then if you go to the very end, verse 23 of Psalms 94, it says, He has brought, he has brought on them their own wickedness and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. So he's going to cut them off in their iniquity. They're going to cut them off in their wickedness. He's going to cut them off. Our God is a God of vengeance. And you can, you can see these imprecatory psalms if you go to Psalm 7 or 35, 40, 55, 58, on and on and on. Our God is the God of vengeance. But you say, well, that's the psalms. How about anything else in the Old Testament? And you could go to a lot. But let's say the prophets, Isaiah 34. Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that, that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord against all nations and His fury against all their armies. If you go to Isaiah 59, verse 18, according to their deeds, according, accordingly, He will repay. He will repay. Fury to His adversaries, recompense to His enemies, the coastlands He will fully repay. God will fully repay. He is a God of vengeance. Well, that's the Old Testament God. How about the New Testament God? In uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, Paul is commending the Thessalonians. He says, Your patience and faith in all your persecution and tribulation that you endure. So he's commending them. You have perseverance and patience and faith in the persecutions and tribulations that you endure. But then he goes on, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you also suffer. Verse 6, since it is a right thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And, and that's a great verse. <laughs> it is a right thing to pay with tribulation those who, that, that trouble you. In fact, he even goes on after that talking about the one whose Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven and, uh, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, our God is a God of love and patience and kindness and gentleness and, and mercy and grace, but he's also a God of vengeance. And as we look at vengeance, we don't want to equate that with like some petty vindictiveness. You know, he's ticked off, he's going to come back and get his pound of flesh. No, we're not talking about that. Not like bitter desire for revenge. No, his holiness and his righteousness demands that sin would be punished. I want you to get that. See, it's, it's, it's His holiness, His righteousness, His justice that demands that sin would be punished. Thankfully, for those who have received Jesus Christ, we understand that though we are sinners and deserve the condemnation of God, 
the penalty for our sin was paid for on the cross. What does Romans say? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The vengeance, the fury, the wrath of God the Father was poured out on Christ. He paid the penalty, not for His sin, He was perfect, but for our sin. Literally, on the cross, Christ exhausted the Father's wrath towards Him. He was completely placed on Christ. And for those who come to faith in Christ, to those who realize that Jesus Christ is the substitutionary death, He's our substitute. He's the one that paid for our penalty. The penalty of death. The penalty that we should be paying. But He paid that penalty on the cross and we receive Him and we repent of our sins and believe on on the perfect Lamb of God. Our sins can be forgiven. So the wrath of God, the vengeance of God has been paid for as far as against my sin, but I didn't have to pay the penalty Christ did. There's a consistency throughout Scripture that the sinner will die, that sin will, be, will have to be punished. Sin has to be punished. Thankfully, Jesus Christ, as the perfect Lamb of God, paid the penalty for my sin. But the vengeance of God was complete. Now, you might say, okay, He's a vengeful God. That sounds negative, but He is a vengeful. He will punish sin. But... I want you to be careful here. And this, this is all groundwork for the passage we're in. But we're not to take vengeance. It's only in God's hands. Romans 12 says this. Verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. Don't avenge yourself. But rather give place to wrath. It's got to have its place. You don't avenge, your, avenge yourself. It has a place. Because it's in God's hands. Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. That's the passage we read in Deuteronomy 32, right? Vengeance is in God's hand. I, I can't take vengeance. And when we look at the passage, this is important because it sounds like they're saying, avenge us, but they're, actually it's a question, not a statement. So vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, what are you supposed to do? Kick him. No. If he's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. Why? Because you, keep, you heap coals of fire on his head. But wait, but that sounds pretty, pretty harsh. Coals of fire on his head. But actually, that's allusion back to like the temple and the coal. And think of Isaiah 6. And, and uh, coal and heat and, uh, was used for purification. What he's saying is this. You do good to your enemy and you have a chance to win your enemy for God. Because it's a purifying effect. When you return good for evil, that person says, wait, that's not right. It's supposed to be evil for evil. And, you, and you're starting to plant a seed. That's what happened with Sutta. Right? Here's the Gospel. But then, yeah, he was. Literally. He was left for dead. And yet, the fact that he didn't strike out, the fact that he didn't swear and cuss, the fact that what? That, that was a huge uh, witness to those who were ungodly. So again, um, justice and vengeance is in God's hands. Now, we take all those thoughts and it starts to make sense why Revelation is written. 
Especially the tribulation. Because many times people say, but why the tribulation? Well, I mean, so total destruction of the earth. Why? Because God is loving and kind and merciful. And we see many people getting saved through the tribulation. But God is also holy and just. And He is a God of vengeance. And sin will be punished. And that's what you see in the, in the seven years, especially of the tribulation. So let me go back to that. I've got uh, some things. Let's just review very quickly. Again, the tribulation, like in Malachi, is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Great and terrible. I mean, because it will be, it will be so horrendous, something that the world has never seen before. Total, complete destruction of this world, of this earth. But we want to be reminded that the source of the tribulation, this is found in your outline, if you will. I mean, if you, haven't, if you don't have your outline, it's right in the bulletin there. But the source of the tribulation is not Satan. The source is not uh, just evil men, though God uses Satan and evil men and the Antichrist and the false prophet. The source is found in Revelation 6, verse 16. It's the passage we're in. And it says, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne, and that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. So the source of the tribulation is God Himself. God is a God of vengeance. Now the timing we found in Daniel chapter 9, uh, if you will, Daniel chapter 9 says, ooh, I love this, and, the, and after the 62 weeks, yeah, if anyone else has any, someone gave me this one, but I need to get a couple more, or I just order them, I just need to, uh, and shall be cut off, I'm not asking you to pay for it, so she'll pay for it, I just need to find out where we got it. Um, Anyways, after 62 weeks, remember these are 62 uh, segments of seven years each. And, and before that it said seven years, and then 62, that's a total of 69. Total weeks, which is segments of seven years each, which is a total of 483 years. The Messiah will be cut off. Okay, And, and what we said last week, because my wife said, John, don't give statistics without a chart. But the point is this. This is the. Well, that's a really pathetic. Oh, there is it. Okay. I'm going to sit over here with my wife. Sit. Okay. The, it's called the 70 weeks of Daniel because that's how he starts it out in, I think, verse 24. But the, the point is, and again, we're not going to go back there, only to say this. The decree in 444 BC with uh, Nehemiah started the, the 70 weeks of Daniel, it went up to the week that Jesus Christ walked into the, uh, the, the temple, or Jerusalem, excuse me, for the last time, okay? And then it says, verse 26, he will be cut off. That happened four days later. So he walked in on a Monday. He was crucified on a Friday. And that, that amount of weeks, 483, 483 uh, uh, years, which was, I was trying to remember last week, which was 173,880 days. Ended the very day, the very hour Jesus Christ walked in to Jerusalem. One word, precision. <laughs> How do you know that that's right, John? Because the, the God who wrote the Bible is, is literally wrote history and is playing it out exactly the way he wants it. He told us. Messiah would be cut off, the war. But then, please leave that up. Then it says, 
and the people of the Prince who is to come. That's the second part of verse 26. The Prince who is to come is not Christ. He's already come. The Prince who is to come is Antichrist. And then it says, then he shall confirm a covenant, verse 27, with many. This is Daniel 9.27. Uh, yeah, 9, There's going to be something happens. The covenant is signed, and then three and a half years later, the covenant is broken, and this entire one week is seven years, which is divided into two segments. You'll see this very clearly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament revelation. It's going to be three and a half years, the first part, and then three and a half years. This is called the Great Tribulation, and right now, today, this is how it plays out, I believe. The seals, the seal judgment is... Seals 1 through 4 is right here. Seal number 5, which is the one we're on, the cry of the martyrs, is, is a bridge going from the first three and a half years to the second three and a half years. Then seal number 6 is right here. And seal number 7 is right here in the Great Tribulation. And seal 7 contains the trumpet judgments as well as the bold judgments. So think of it this way. The seal, the seventh seal is broken, let's say maybe six, eight months before the very end. And then the bowls, which also introduce the trumpet. The seventh trumpet, and I'm going to show you another chart next week, okay? I've got it, but it's not purpose for here. But because I want you to see the big picture, okay? Seals one through four, chapter, or excuse me, seal number five is a bridge between the the first three and a half years to the, the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years. Seal 6, Seal 7, the seventh seal introduces the seven trumpet judgments. The last of them is the seventh trumpet, which is, introduces the bowl judgment, the seven bowl judgments. And they happen in rapid fire, like <coughs> all within maybe three weeks. Because let's face it, when the sun goes out, you don't have much time. Everything is going down, Right? I mean, it all ends where the very end, the sun literally goes out. Not darkened, out. Well, that's a matter of hours before we become like Mars and it's, you know, minus however many degrees, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? So that's at the very end. It's like a rapid fire. Because if, if, if he didn't cut it short, no flesh would survive, okay? So that's the big picture. I want you to get the big picture. Because now you can start putting pieces in. Which means this, Revelation chapter 6 carries us all the way to the end of the sixth seal. Chapter 7 takes us back and we find out about the 144,000, the witnesses and those who die as a witness for Christ. Chapter 8 introduces us to seal number 7. So by the time we get to chapter 8 of Revelation, we're, we're, we're uh, just about right here. Okay, as far as the trumpet, the bold judgments and stuff like that. All right, we'll, we'll get into more specifics. Now, Revelation chapter 6. Again, the Lamb opens the seals, and we've looked at the seals. <coughs> the scroll is the title deed to the earth, but it's not what Christ is going to inherit, because he's already inherited, I mean, it's already his. What the scrolls do is, the scroll does, with the seals is, it shows us how Christ takes the earth back. See, he, he allows judgments on the earth which carry it right to the very end. The lights go out, the sun goes out, the moon goes out, because the moon is just a reflector. <coughs> and then Jesus Christ comes back and says, every eye will see him. You know how every eye is going to see him? Because he comes back in blazing glory in an entire universe that is pitch black. 
That is the baby coming, right? Right? Remember we did birth pangs? We talked about Braxton Hicks last week. Braxton Hicks, you know, we're in the, in the in, in intermediate uh, birth pains right now. We're seeing wars. We're seeing all this stuff. But there's coming a day when the, the, the actual birth pains are <coughs> going to start. And that's going to be the last seven years. Right up to the very end. In the, in, in the final end, it's going to be all this excruciating pain. Right? That's the bold judgment. And then at the very end of the bowl judgment, Jesus Christ comes back. Everything is pitch black, and God in all his glory comes back, and every eye will see him. So that's the that's the scroll that is being the seals broken. And then we we looked at each one of the seals. The first one was false peace, covering most of the uh, first three and a half years. A white horse, but he had no bow. It's it's, it's a power, but the, the key personality is Antichrist. We're going to see that again in chapter um, 13. But the first seal is peace, but the second peace, uh, seal, it says he opened the second seal, verse 3. I'm in Re- uh, Revelation 6, verse 3. A fiery horse went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Why? Because there was a false peace leading up to that. See, that's where I get the peace in verse in, in the white horse. There was a false peace, and now peace is taken from the earth, and people shall kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And number three, this third seal was broken, and it's a black horse. This has to do with uh, famine. So it goes from false peace to war to famine. Again, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Quart of wheat, enough, enough food for one person to eat for one day takes a whole day's wage. These are famine conditions. Again, uh, three quarts of barley, less nutritious, but maybe to feed a family, takes a whole day's wage. You work a whole day just to get enough food to survive. And then the obvious after you have death and famine, or excuse me, war and famine is death. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, come and see. And this is a pale horse. Pale, ashen, green, green yellowish. It represents death. It represents like a corpse. And so you have the grim reaper killing and the grave digger scooping them up, which is Hades. But now we get to the fifth seal. And this one is opened, except now, and I'm going to, you know, we're going to go from earth now to heaven. By the way, this is how he's been doing it. John, as he's writing down, uh, sometimes we're on earth, sometimes we're in the heavens. I mean, remember Revelation 1, we saw the glorified Christ. That's him glor- That's in heaven. But then we had the seven churches of the Revelation, right? That's on earth. That's present day. That's right now. Char- seven characteristic churches of this age, okay? But then we went back up to heaven, the heavenly throne, God the Father, God the one who's the creator, chapter 4. And then the lamb that's on the throne, chapter 5. See, we've been going up and down. And now, we started on the earth, verses 1 to 8, but now we're in heaven. And you might say, well, why is that? Why is he going back and forth? Because it encourages us. See, could you really take a book that just said did rapid... 
rapid fire all the death and destruction that's going to happen. I mean, it would almost make us like this. <laughs> I, wanna, I, I mean, if you really are paying attention, this would totally depress us. And might even say, like, not only depress us, but totally discourage us. So what does he do? He keeps giving us glimpses of God. Why? Because what is he saying there? God is in control. It's all, it's all according to God's plan. You could say it this way. God wrote history, and now he's executing it. He wrote it. This is how it's going to play out, and now he's just executing it. Everything is according to God's plan. Parachuting is according to God's plan. Terrorism. What he's doing in, in different uh, countries. All according. It's all been ordered by the one who is seated on the throne. Heaven rules. Heaven rules on this earth. It's not haphazard. It's not haphazard. It's not random. God superintends all that takes place. This should be immense comfort to us. Immense reassurance. We, live in, we do live in very chaotic times, right? But the one who sent his son so that we might have forgiveness, the one by his spirit who has drawn you into the church, into his body through the sacrifice of Christ by receiving him, the one who tells us through his son, Jesus Christ, that we can call him father, he's orchestrating all this. This is all, and so therefore we are safe and secure. We should have comfort and encouragement through this. Some of you might die within the next year. And it may not be because of the health issues. It might be somebody shot you. Some of us might end up in jail. I hate that thought. Not being able to see my kids and grandkids. I love my wife too, but I mean, you know. (laughs) I asked my wife, I said, okay, you you can only save one person. And I'm there and one of my grandkids is there. Who are you going to save? And she said, well, you know who I'm going to pick because you'd pick the same one, my grandkid. Right? We've had a good life. Wouldn't you want to sacrifice? So when I say all these contexts, I mean, we've talked, and I love my wife, and I would protect her, but, you know. But this is the point. This is what I keep thinking. Do I love Jesus Christ more than my wife and my children and my grandkids? Because you know what? When you see people sacrificing and witnessing and suffering, do you understand that they love Christ more than even their own kids? Because I, I think of John Bunyan, who was in Bedford jail for, what, 12 years at the one time, and I think a few more. And then it, there was this little dear, little daughter, blind daughter, Mary. Little Mary would go see John Bunyan in Bedford jail. And because Daddy was in jail and would not renounce Christ, would not renounce the fact of preaching Christ, she had to suffer. She had to be without. She had to go hungry many, many times because Daddy was not able to provide food because Daddy was in jail. See, that's how it plays out. Where's your loyalty lie? Is it first with Christ? Or do you say it this way? I, I will follow Christ as long as my family's taken care of. No, no, that's not the The question is, are you willing to follow Christ? We've got to be loyal to Him first. And these are a people who are loyal to Him first. Look at the second part. We go from the place which is in heaven. Again, the fifth seal was open and I saw under the altar. That's where I get the fact that we're in heaven. Under the altar, what? The souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. That's why they were, 
That's why these people were killed. The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, by this point, if I had my chart up there, I believe we're right close to the middle or just past the middle of the tribulation. Okay? So the point is, is this. These are people who have died in the first half of the tribulation. And now God takes us and God wants to give us encouragement. These are ones who died on this earth. But let me give you a little bit more of the story, God says, so I can encourage you. Because we, can, we couldn't take too much of this, you know, death and destruction and the seal judgments and the trumpets and the bold judgment. I mean, after a while, it just because, you know, it's your worst nightmare. Hollywood could not come up with what is in the book of uh, Revelation because it's so massive. So God wants to encourage us. Again, these are martyrs who are killed. Well, they, they, were, they would be killed in the false peace and the war and the famine and all the death, all the, the first four sealed judgments, okay? Now, let me ask you some questions. First of all, how did they get saved? Because I think it's very clear in Scripture that at the end of chapter 3, before the tribulation starts, the, the, um, the um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. The church is gone. I mean, we're supposed to be the witness on this earth, right? Well, again, you can just turn to one chapter, chapter 7, just a few verses over after these things I saw, and we have the 144,000 witnesses. That starts, by the way, at the beginning of the tribulation. Let me tell you how this book plays out. See, by the end of chapter 6, we're already through six of the seals. He, he says that very clearly. Chapter 6, seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I mean, like, what else is there to do? Well, he does, in the book of Revelation, like a good writer in the newspaper would do. He gives you the information, and then he goes back, and he tells you another piece of information. Like, in chapter 7, he tells us, this is how people are getting saved. you got 144,000 Jews walking around who are true believers in Jesus Christ who are proclaiming the everlasting gospel, Okay? So that's how these people got saved. It wouldn't have been through the church. They're already gone, but it'd be the 144,000 witnesses that we see in the next chapter. How about number two? When did they die? Again, I believe if you... If you, you might want to write this down. In Matthew 24, Jesus at the, uh, at the Olivet Discourse. Remember, we, we looked at uh, Mark 13 for four different weeks here just a couple months ago. And we found out that Jesus walks into the temple area, or into Jerusalem, excuse me, on Monday, and he, and he teaches a number of things, and on Wednesday, he lays down the rest of human history. That's called the Olivet Discourse. In fact, this is what's interesting about Jesus speaking at that moment. At the very moment when the Jewish leaders have determined that Jesus Christ is not God, is not from God, and that they need to kill him, is the very moment on that Wednesday, just before his death on Friday, that he lays out what only God could do, and that is the rest of human history. Isn't that amazing? They have determined he is not God, and then Jesus sits and says, but I'll tell you what's going to happen from now to the end. What only God could do. Gives me chills. Now, in that Olivet Discourse found in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, we find him saying this, Jesus to his disciples. To his disciples, not to the unbeliever, just to his disciples. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Why that's important is because in verse 15, a few verses later, he talks about the abomination 
of desolation. Now, in sequence, that means this. Can you give me that? Can you give me that? <laughs> that means, he says you're going to be killed, but then there's going to be the abomination of desolation. That happens right at the three and a half year mark. That happens when the Antichrist breaks the covenant. He sets himself up in the temple as God and expects worship from the Jews. Now, if, as Jesus is saying, is sequential, verse 9 says, they're going to be, you're going to be killed, and then the abomination and desolation happens. So you know where these guys have already... These guys have been killed in the first three and a half years. You just, the, the thing is this, if you take what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25, and then you start comparing it to Revelation, it, it, it's sequentially exactly the same. He already told us. All the book of Revelation does is fills in all the pieces with precision. Okay? So, like, we're not, like, wondering. No, this is exactly. In fact, in verse 10 it says this, and at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. That's happening in our time, but there's going to become a time that's even greater when false prophets are running around, and that's in that first three and a half years. The first three and a half years. And, and notice what it says. Many will fall away. That means fall away. Those who profess Christ reject Christ. And will betray one another. Those who are Christians, say they're Christians, will betray others. That's like this. I mean, let's put it personal. That's like four or five people, and I'm not even going to point to you, betraying someone else, betraying me, and, and turning me in so that I would be prosecuted. Oh, that would never happen in this church. no. It, it happens and it's going to continue to happen. I, was, I, I like listening periodically to the Newsboys, I believe it is. God's Not Dead, is that the, is that the band? I want to get the right boys there, Newsboys. Um, apparently, a while back, one of the singers turned atheist. You know what I'm talking about? One of the singers, main singers of Newsboys, turns atheist. Is that correct? I don't, you're like, I don't know. I don't care about the newsboys. But the point is this. It just hit me. You know what? People defect. They, by the way, they don't lose their salvation. It just proves what they really are. I do believe in eternal security for those who have truly been saved. Okay? But I'll tell you what. You can have a lot of people run around saying a lot of things, and they can really muddy the waters. So these are souls. Let's just move on because of time. Their souls are not glorified yet. Their souls, the altar, the souls of those who have been slain. Under the altar, the altar is most likely emblematic of the altar of incense in the Old Testament. Again, this altar is the golden altar found in heaven. These souls are under the altar. These are around. These are the ones who are worshiping God, but they've been slain. But why were they slain? Notice this. For the Word of God, we mean the Word of God, what the Word of God says. For the Word of God. For the, in other words, the Word says, and they held to it, and they held to it to such a degree that people killed them for it. What do you mean? Well, go to Iran and proclaim Jesus is Lord. You'd be killed right there. But that's what the Bible says. That, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is the only Savior, that if, you need, that if, a, if a person wants to be saved, it has to come through Christ. See, that's the word that, that's their, that, that's the word that they held up. 
These are people in the tribulation, along with the 144,000, but they were sealed. They couldn't be hurt. But these are ones who received Christ, and then they went out proclaiming Christ. Repent and believe in the only Lord Jesus Christ, and they were killed for it. They were killed for the proclamation. But notice this, and for the testimony they held. It refers to their loyalty to Christ. So not only their proclamation of the Word and holding to what the Word says and who Christ is and salvation is, but they're also loyal to Jesus Christ. They held to their testimony. That word testimony is martyrion. We get martyr from it. Which they held. In other words, it wasn't just that they spoke the Word. They actually lived the Word. They lived it. Let me go back to Matthew 28. Remember Jesus said, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What? Teaching them all things. Is that what it says? Teaching them to observe all things. See, we're supposed to not only listen to the Word of God, we are to learn the Word of God, but then we are to live the Word of God. That's this right here. See, they didn't just proclaim the truth. They lived the truth for the testimony which they held. They were loyal to Jesus Christ, to His ways. They didn't just preach it. They lived it. One guy said this, the testimony is the, is the, the te- their testimony is the badge of their allegiance and loyalty to Christ. That was their badge. They were loyal to Christ, His ways, His purposes, His people, His plan. To the testimony. I think that's where many times Christianity goes uh, uh, far away. You have a person who will proclaim the truth of the gospel, but they won't live it. I tell you what, if you want to ever do major damage, if you're a parent to one of your kids, don't live what you proclaim. What do they call you? Hypocrite. I don't want any of that. These people proclaimed it and lived it. And because they were consistent, because they lived for Him, by telling others about him, they were killed. Okay? They were killed. But notice what they're saying. So they're, they are faithful. And I, and I just keep asking myself, Lord, am I going to be faithful when that, that fist comes around to hit me in the face? Or will I back down and say, well, you know, I, my kids need a father. No, no. Are we loyal to Jesus Christ first and foremost? Are you loyal where you're at work? In your family, we're going to see people in, on Thanksgiving. Are you loyal to Christ? Or is it, you know, are, I, they just know that you're kind of fanatical and you're kind of weird and religious. No, no. Are, do they know that you're a Christian? By the way, the other part of the gospel that really ticks off an unbeliever is this. That they are hopeless and helpless sinners. See, Religion works against Christianity, right? Organized religion. Because organized religion says this. The system can make you righteous enough before this God that He looks with a good eye towards you. See, religion says you can work your way to being pleasing before God. What does Christianity say? You're damned. And there's no hope, and there's no help except for the fact of what Christ did on the cross. He's your only hope. Outside of that, you are damned. People get it. That means their religion is wrong. Who are you to tell me what I believe is wrong? Okay, so that's why. All right, let's get, a, let's get back up to heaven, though. Number three, the prayers, and they cried out with a loud voice. 
Now notice, this is a question. How, low, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until, the ju- until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a question. It's not a statement. He's not saying, do it. He's saying, how long? By the way, that word cry means strong, emotional, loud wailing. But it's in the um, like singular form. In other words, they weren't on and on continuous. It was just, they just asked the question, Lord, how long? But they, how long? And they use the word, how long, O Lord? Usually you find the word kurios. That's used like 900 times in the New Testament. But this word is despot. We get the word despot. Very rarely used. O Lord, despot. In other words, master, sovereign, the almighty one. Lord, how long, this is what they're asking, how long are you going to allow this rebellion to go on? Because let's face it, our human feeling wants to what? Zap. <laughs> Done. But God is patient. How long? Oh Lord. And you get the, the... See, we always go until you judge and avenge our blood. But the first thing they say is this. How long, O oh Lord, holy and true? See, they first of all say, Lord, you are holy. You are holy. Therefore, you must judge sin. Psalms 5 says this. You are, uh, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. You're holy. And not only that, but you're true. You must be faithful to your word. Holy means you must judge sin. True means you must be faithful to what your word says. Your word says you're a God of vengeance. Your word says that you judge sin. We know you judge sin. We know the cross. That's where you placed our sin on Christ. Holy and true one, how long? See, they're beseeching the Father and saying, Lord, we know you're true. In fact, we know it, like, like in uh, Matthew, <coughs> or excuse me, Luke, it says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not by no means pass away. He said that in the context of judgment. See, he's saying, listen, I just laid out for you history in Luke 21. He ends by saying, and heaven and earth is going to pass away, which it will. But I'll tell you this, even though heaven and earth is going to pass away, I'll tell you something that will not pass away. What, what I've just told you. My word will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. This will be all burned up, but you know what's not ever going to pass away? What I have told you. And you can mark it down exactly like I said, it will be played out. Why? Because I am proclaiming myself to be God, he says in the temple. Right? Actually, he wasn't in the temple. He was outside the temple. But do you see what I'm saying? We always use that word, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. That was said in the context of the end times. He, he had just laid out history, and he says, and you can mark it down. Now these guys, these martyrs are saying, Lord, you're holy, you're true. How long before you finally judge these sinners? You avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That's pointing to the ungodly, the earth dwellers. Now notice his response. Again, we get encouraged by this. Then a white robe was given to them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while. By the way, it's not showing impatience. These are glor- these are not glorified. These are people in heaven. They have no sin. But he's saying just patience, patience gives them a robe. Uh, they don't have a glorified body yet. Most commentators say this is just symbolic, but it's symbolic of something. In other words, what is a white robe? Just remember the righteousness that you've been given. You are completely safe and secure. 
The earth is going through a horrendous, traumatic experience, but you're safe and secure. And then he says this, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while. I like what uh, Dr. Thomas said, rest in your blessedness until both the number of their fellow servants, those are people who are alive and willing to die like martyrs, and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Actually, I think there's two different groups of people here. Some who are willing to die as martyrs and others who are going to die as martyrs. But if you just wrap it all together, the bottom line is there's going to be more people that die. According to God's will. According to God's will. So he just says, you know, he comforts them. A white world. Be patient. Just, you know. Again, not because they were sinning. They were just asking the question, no, everything, i.e. this. Everything is completely under control. Next time you watch Fox News, remember that. Everything is completely under control. Right? And that's the conservative station, right? No. Okay, the point is, is everything is completely under control. Was their prayer answered? Six seal, verse 12. That's the answer to the prayer. Everything gets upped. The intensity increases. You'll see this with all the seals, trumpets, ending with bowls. Every time a new one is introduced, it is intensified. It is intensified. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. There's another time at the end, Matthew 16, or excuse me, Revelation 16, that it says the greatest of all earthquakes happened. See, you see earthquakes throughout the book. But this is a great earthquake, bigger than anything up to this point. And the sun became black as sackcloth. In the very end, the sun goes out. So this is not the end. See, some people try to see Revelation like this, layered. And they just look, and you say, if you look down through, it's the same event that just keeps getting repeated. Don't see Revelation like that. These are sequential. Okay? And it's very obvious because he, he doesn't say that the sun goes out. It says it became black like sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. So he didn't go out. In the end, it goes out. Because there's no sun to reflect. And that, look at this. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of the heaven fell to the earth like a fig tree, you know, and look at this, verse 14, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth. Now notice this, and the great men. See, these are all the people that took stock in this earth. The rich men and the commanders, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves of the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, they, they were talking to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? See, we, with, with the, the seal six, we have definitely entered into the last three and a half years. I'll tell you what, you read that right there and it gives us total um, perspective of living on this earth. Don't try to get your little kingdom here. It's, <laughs> it's not going to last. Work towards what Christ wants. So this is increasing. This is universal because it says every slave and every free man. But notice the source again, verse 16. It was the wrath of the Lamb. Let me close out with just three or four, again, obvious applications. Question, or question. 
Do we find our comfort in the fact that everything wrong will be judged and every right will be rewarded? Do you find comfort in that fact? Every wrong will be judged and every right will be rewarded. That's part of the, uh, the, the martyrs, okay? But I mean, are we, are we, hopefully as you're doing the study with me, you're, you're saying, you know what? You're right. Every wrong will be judged. So I click on the news and I see all the craziness in our world, in our nation, in other nations. Just know this, every wrong will be judged. But also the other side is this, every right will be rewarded. Live for Christ and, and pray that even the enemies find their salvation and their hope in Jesus Christ, right? In other words, we do not pray for the enemies to be destroyed. We pray that they will understand that their sin and the judgment that their sin deserved was paid for on the cross and that they can receive the Lord Jesus Christ as well. You mean a Muslim can receive Christ? There is a tremendous movement of Muslims receiving Christ. Right? Number two. Again, these are martyrs. The thinking of these men and women was this that they were willing to give their lives to Jesus Christ, which meant, that, which meant this. The message, the mission, and the master was more important than themselves. Now I want you to get this. The mission, the message, and the master was more important than themselves. That's, see, you die when a person dies, that means they're loyal to Christ. They are more loyal to Christ than to themselves. Are you more loyal to yourself or to Christ? I think that's a hard question. I think we have our little area, we set it all up, and then we decide if we're going to serve Jesus. That's not how... Jesus said, I'm Lord. I am Master, and you're just my slave. The question is, are we following him like that? Do we follow Jesus Christ like his slave? He can put us through whatever, and we say, Lord, we're going to honor you. We're going to be faithful to you. Final one is this. Are you thinking more like an earth dweller or a citizen of heaven? an earth dweller or a citizen of heaven. Setting your affections on things above. If you're a spouse, do you treat your spouse with a, your spouse with a give and take attitude? You know, I'll, I'll give to her if she like pay. You know, I'll give and take. Or with a love and commitment that the Bible both commands and requires. In other words, if I have a loyalty to Jesus Christ, then I treat my wife with an unselfish love. It doesn't matter what she gives me back. It's, it's about me serving her. Why? Because that's what he said. Do you see the difference? That's a game changer for a marriage. Or let's say parents, do you get more excited about your child's athletic ability or his SAT score than the development of his biblical character and his ability to follow and obey Jesus Christ? No, SAT scores are important. Not in comparison to following Christ. We put all our time into this stuff that's so temporary. Are we pouring our lives into our kids so that they follow Christ? Last one. If your greatest happiness, is your greatest happiness found in the things that are seen and physical and temporary and earthly or in what is not seen, spiritual and eternal? Or as many said over the years, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
For a lot of us, it isn't. People just look at us and say, oh, you're different, you're a little bit weird, and you're religious. But they don't know that we are Christians. We need to be loyal to Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we worship Him.